Hello, Beth. I love you. I hope. All right. Uh, Hopefully Mason will erase that. Hopefully you won't, Mason. Uh, yeah, Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 17. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed and the one, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? And you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying, wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose, he calls you, through our proclamation of the good news, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. You know, one one thing about... uh, uh, preaching uh, as organized by the lectionary is um, that you uh, don't have the luxury of avoiding things most of the time that uh, most folks would like to avoid. Although I will say, the uh, lectionary or the, the lectionary in uh, all but the Catholic Church just omit verses six through twelve in this passage, so there's never any obligation by anyone in any uh, mainland Protestant church to say and or preach about these things. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough passage, and so, uh, you know, the way I typically start with a tough passage is to uh, make a hokey joke. So, uh, in a continuing homage to Beth's favorite 1980s music, I'm going to call this one the final countdown. This is, uh, I don't know, the Helen of Troy of teeny apocalypses. It's a, uh, it's a piece that has launched innumerable attempts to figure out under what conditions the Antichrist will come. It's uh, a passage, like I say, that a lot of folks uh, don't preach with any consistency, And although you know we've made a dedicated effort at Resurrection to uh, dive directly into it and Revelation and the other places because we believe in proclaiming the entirety of the word. Uh, whether or not you align with what exactly is proclaimed may be a different question, but of course 
uh, we are going to uh, proclaim it unashamedly in, in its totality and to the best of our ability. Um, and the weird thing is, is this is one of those passages where um, it's very difficult to figure out how to deal with it if um, one is a completely unflinching literalist. And, and the reason I say that, I often, I've oftentimes joked that I'd feel a lot more comfortable with a lot of folks' theological commitment to literalism if they read stuff in the original language and really interpreted it uh, in the, uh, to the letter of the literalist law. Because if you read this passage closely, one of the things you see in the Greek is that there are all these clues that there is a story going on here that is a lot more complex than the way that folks have typically read this passage. So my, my understanding of how folks typically read this passage is that it's uh, something like a recipe for the coming of the Antichrist. So you take one enemy and you sprinkle in one restrainer. You let the restrainer restrain for a while, 45 minutes to an hour at 350, pull off, and all of a sudden you've got eschatological souffle. Most folks read this as a, a, a set of, of cues about what has to come about in order for Jesus' coming to come about, and therefore they read it as an attempt to forecast and or prognosticate about uh, what we're told in the original letter to Thessalonica is something that uh, happens at least uh, as it, with a kind of a, a lack of certainty that's parallel with the thief coming in the night. Now, so there's lots of weird stuff going on in this passage, but uh, the other thing that's interesting about this passage to me that uh, I think provides maybe one of the better ways of thinking about what's going on here is that if you just apply the most basic elements of, uh, of a rhetorical technique of reading and asking what it is that this audience needs, to me, the total purpose of the passage changes radically. So, you know, and, and you all are in various relationships, whether they be... Uh, you know, mentoring or parental or uh, if you've ever served in a, a, a capacity for advice or assistance to another person who didn't, you know, quite have the either uh, experience or insight that you did. And especially if you're a parent and you think about this in relationship to children or if you have a, 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 a relative who's a child, the, the primary way we think about those relationships is we ask ourselves, how is it that we can uh, address those who are in our care in a way that um, maximally aligns them with the values of and hope of the kingdom. And that so, you know, to me, the main way of reading what's going on in, in, in this passage or in, even in this kind of second letter to Thessalonica is pastoral. What is, what is Paul saying to these folks? And instead of reading it as totally decontextualized from the theological purpose that Paul is engaging here as a pastor, maybe it's better for us to understand the goal that Paul is trying to achieve with this audience. So he starts right out in 2.1 after he gets through the, um, the normal kind of introductory stuff. What does he say when he gets to the substance of the letter? He says, as to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or word or letter to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Now, if you, if you think about what's being I always had a tendency to read these things and, uh, and think about them as a set of abstract theological claims. You know, Paul, Paul is, uh, is doing, uh, obviously, the intentional work of writing scripture here, and so everything that Paul does is organized by that fact. My, it, it is my belief 
that uh, uh, Paul is also doing something very human here. He's administer, uh, administering care and advice to a congregation, and that in the miracle of, uh, of our God's uh, moving in the world, that that word becomes inspired in a way that has something direct and timeless and true to say to us. But the underlying concern here for Paul is pastoral. What is it? I mean, if you really break, strip it down to its most basic elements— this is not like about a, a concern for creating a list for what's about to happen in the end times here. This is a letter to a group of people who are in pretty rough shape. Like a number of their, uh, their fellows had been killed, had been persecuted. These are, these are folks who uh, could not swear the loyalty oath to the emperor. And so they were locked out of uh, day-to-day social commerce. Uh, these are folks who feel excluded who feel ostracized, who feel targeted because of their faith. They're sad. They feel under threat. And more than that, more than that, apparently Paul feels the need, or pseudo-Paul or whoever it is, feels the need to write a second letter because in the context of all of this, there's this rumor floating around in the congregation that not only is their suffering in vain, but guess what? Their suffering is completely meaningless. Because someone said, hey, you know what? Big events already happened. Jesus was going to come back, establish the day of the Lord, and sorry, you all are left behind. So here are these people that are suffering under the context of some incredibly difficult circumstances. They're facing some incredibly difficult things. And the thing behind this letter is that there is this kind of overwhelming hopelessness in the community of Thessalonica that had said to them, guess what? God has forgotten about you, doesn't care about you, has left you behind. And that you suffer, you suffer without the possibility of redemption, without the possibility of being reunited with the people that you care about, without the possibility of uh, realizing everything that is gorgeous and beautiful about the kingdom that God promises. And so here you are in Thessalonica, just suffering without any purpose, suffering without any meaningful potential end to it. Man, that has to sting. You know, you can see why Paul's writing much more crisply and much more directly in that second letter. I don't think it's because he wants to admonish them. I think it's because he understands the depth of their desperation. That the things that had provided hope for them, and there's a bunch of folks in this congregation right now who know how important a vision of hope is, a vision of being tied to an understanding that, that God is with us and that when we suffer, we don't just suffer randomly, but we suffer because God is moving and perfecting and, and, and helping and making the kingdom better and all that stuff. And I think Paul looked at those folks in Thessalonica and said, they have given up on the hope that their God loves and cares about them. They think that God has come and left them and that everything that they do is useless. And so he's going to write with some passion. He's going to write to try and convince them. So he's essentially uh, suggesting a reboot. And I don't know, I was trying to think about the best way to describe how this reboot would work. And I'm sorry to always use uh, examples about kids, but I'll use a, a kid example and other folks may have applicable examples. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the best one I had. But, uh, you know, uh, let's say, uh, imagine your family drives, uh, you know, for... 12, 13 hours to go to uh, a place with some consistency over the summer. And you've done it uh, consistently enough that all your children have taken the trip. And it, whatever the place is for us, the place is, is New York. Uh, you know 
that there's this struggle that the kid has with driving when they're in the like three-year-old to four-year-old range. You know, because they like, they're aware enough to get bored, but they also don't have any meaningful framework for time. So if you're like, we've been on the road for, uh, you know, eight hours and we're going to be on for another four more. That's like talking to like, it's like talking about differential equations to a kid. They literally have no idea what that means or, you know, God forbid the kid's like, oh, I'm 66.7% of the way through. Awesome. You know, this, this suffering won't last for too much longer. So, you know, so you develop this game. I imagine everybody's got some version of it. And the game we play is we say, okay, well, you know, what has to happen before we get, uh, get Audi? So uh, we usually go by uh, New York City. Have we gone by New York City yet? Oh, no, we haven't gone by. Uh, well, you know, you see the Statue of Liberty yet. Have we, have we seen the statue yet? Okay, but we have seen, I don't know, the, the beauty of New Jersey or whatever it is. So, you know, the kid gets some sense that there's a path and they're on the path and that in order to understand when they're likely to get there, there's a set of things that they anticipate or look out for. The answer to the question is, are we out east yet, is have you seen New York City yet? That's how it works in our family. I'm sure it works in the same way in your family. I think this is exactly what Paul's doing here. The question is, does God still love us? That's the question the audience is asking. That's there, are we there yet? And, and, and Paul's answer is, is there still evil? Because if there's still evil in the world, then we know that God has not come for us. Paul says uh, in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come, this is the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. You Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was with you? Now, if you read this very carefully, read this very carefully and ask yourself, why does it use the term or the phrase so-called God? The thing about the Antichrist is that the Antichrist exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Aren't all non-God claims to be God so-called gods? So what, what is it that makes this one unique? It, 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 gets, even, it, it gets even more difficult here when you look uh, at the way it's, it's, it's set up in the Greek. So if you look very closely at the rebellious one and the lawless one. In verse 4, the reason why, uh, in your translation might read something different. Can someone give me, does everybody have kind of NRSV on verse 4? What, what, what do you have on 4? He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Yeah, so what's so interesting about that is that it, this is one of those passages in uh, the New Testament where interpreters have to make this really difficult choice. Because half the time, and, and the Greek language is super finicky about this, okay? The Greek language is really good about distinguishing between a category and a concept or a person. So the, the pronouns are very good at it. There's endings to words that indicate that. So usually in Greek, it is super clear if someone's talking about a thing or an idea as opposed to a person. English is getting a little less clear around that, and they and yada, yada, yada. But in, in, in English here, the, 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 there is not anywhere near as, as clear as Greek, where in Greek it's very clear if you look at, you know, uh, if you look at the words describing something, if you think about the endings, tenses, if you look at, at the pronouns, it's very clear 
when the language is talking about an abstract concept versus when the language is talking about a person. Now, the reason why the NRSV translates it the way that it does is because in the Greek, the idea of the lawless one is talked about as an abstract concept. It's not a person, it's an abstract concept that it then is embodied in a person. I know that's kind of confusing, but the Greek would literally translate as something like the son of the destruction. Okay, the destruction is also a name for something. It's a name that aligns with the concept and idea of the Antichrist. It's not a personal concept. And then it's embodied in a specific person. And the crazy making thing about the Greek here is that the Greek is constantly flipping back and forth between uh, like the opposing one or uh, the rebellious one or the lawless one. And in each of those instances, there's not even a he there. There's only like a that. And all these uses of him or son that we see in a lot of translations, those are just kind of stuck in by English interpreters for ease of reading. But what's really interesting about the, the biblical Greek here is that it's moving back and forth between like Antichrist as a title and a category versus it as a specific embodied human person. Okay, the second thing is, the second thing that should tip us off is that the one who opposes or the son of the destruction that Paul keeps kind of referring to here, almost all the language that talks about the characteristics of this person we've heard before. Where? We've heard it in Daniel, the lawless one who exalts himself over God. We've heard it in Ezekiel, the one who sits on the temple of God. And we've heard it in Isaiah, the lawless one who will be slain. This is, this is a, a fairly common thread that's used in, I don't, apparently there's a book called the Old Testament and people refer to it sometimes. But um, the, the way Paul is referring here to the lawless one or the Antichrist uh, generally borrows from the elements of the Old Testament prophetic tradition where, and Trey can check me on this, the king is often seen to be the representation of what is corrupt about humanity. So if someone's writing about a a, a king of Israel and the king of Israel is representative of the fact that Israel has fallen away, the king tends to be the embodiment of selfishness or hard-heartedness or callousness, and the king tends to be the one who uh, gets the the action and or uh, punishment from God so that the king serves as kind of an exemplar of uh, the hard hearts of Israel. They're the condensation of the general human tendency, in this, in this instance, the general tendency of, of Israel to rebel against God. Well, the reason I make the point is because not only is it moving in this, ta- in this, uh, this kind of passage between uh, this kind of abstract title and a specific person, but it's also referring to uh, a, a kind of a, a, a theme or a shape of a story that would have been very familiar to people in the audience around those who claim corrupt and forfeit power. It's like if I would have stood up in the uh, the beginning of the sermon today and say, imagine an evil emperor who represents the dark side of the force against a raging band of rebels. If I say that, it invokes the possibility that there's a a more specific story that is at play there. Of course, it doesn't make the story untrue, but what it does do is it demonstrates there's something like a literary type here. And the more you think about this, as, you know, we could, we could talk about this for a good while, I imagine. What is the major theme behind 
the, this story. It's a, a story where there is an evil force that wants to do something to harm God's people. God restrains it, and then God lets that evil force go. Uh, the evil force exercises judgment, and then God subdues it. Have we heard the story before? Anybody have any places where they remember that basic narrative? Okay, into Babylon, restrained by God, let go, punishes Israel, then destroyed. Yep, what else? The flood? Mm, The Red Sea? Uh, The uh, wandering through the desert? Um, The Passover, which is exactly... This story, and oh yeah, Jesus Christ. The point is, there is this kind of archetype here that is, that is woven throughout the entirety of the Bible that says that, you know, God is the one who will restrain the kind of worst abuses of, of evil against us, but who will one day allow judgment to occur and finally put evil to rest. It's referring to this kind of story that we've all heard, talked about, thought about, and, uh, of course, is, is at the core of the Christian tradition. And what's so interesting is, if you have any doubts that what's at play here is kind of a principle or an idea as opposed to a prediction about a specific person, then I, I, I challenge anybody to wrap a, a meaningful frame around a literalist reading of the following idea. Ready? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Okay, first of all, who is Satan here? Who is Satan? Is that what you said? Yeah. The one? Well, Satan, but here's the thing. Satan is not the lawless one here. Satan is the representation of the lawless one. Satan is one example of the lawless one. Who is the lawless one then? I mean, like, typically do we not think of Satan as kind of the embodiment of evil and rebellion? The, you know, that there'd be no evil in the universe save for the fact that Satan bumps us towards it by getting us to use our free choice in a way that's wrong. So we typically understand Satan and evil to be equivalent. At least that's how I understand our tradition. Who is the lawless one that is above prior to or the principle before Satan of which Satan is an example? I don't agree with it either. Yes, good. You're a good Christian. The, I, I, I'm not sure I'll, I'll say this correctly. Satan is, he's the one that's pulling the strings. The lawless one works for Satan. No, that's not, this says that Satan is, uh, that the coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan. Satan is the subsidiary. Who's the lawless one? That's not what the Greek says. It's just not what the grammar says. 
down. Well, okay, so there are two possible answers here, I think, yes. The first answer, and I think this is one of the places where we really need to think carefully about our theology of Satan. The place where we need to think seriously about our theology of Satan is sometimes we tend to, whether we agree with it or not, or think about it or not, we tend to give Satan godlike powers and presume that those godlike powers are, uh, that, so Satan is permanent until he's defeated by Christ. Satan has influence over us. Uh, uh, Satan has the ability to manipulate and move events in the world. We tend to see Satan oftentimes in the Christian tradition as a teeny little less powerful God. I don't think that's right at all. Even though we talk about it like that all the time. We're not dualists. We don't believe there are two principles in the universe. We believe there is one principle in the universe. That principle is God. Nothing can exist. Nothing can be. Nothing can have order. Nothing in any way can at all enter the character of the cosmos absent God's creative power. God creates everything. God is the principle. Now, the second possibility is this. There is not, even though the literal reading of the scripture implies it here, a lawless one who is before Satan, of whom Satan is one example. Instead, you'd have to say there's something like evil is a principle which is embodied in the person Satan, which represents the fundamental prideful attempt of the universe to say that it is in control rather than saying God is in control. And that Satan is a representation of a general tendency of rebellion that Satan also then advances and, 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 and utilizes and, and, and tries to make worse, etc. But what really struck me about reading this is what Paul's saying here is that Satan is in some way subsidiary to a principle of rebellion and that God is the one who essentially tamps down the rebellion by imposing a sovereign order in the universe. And that it says that in the end, Satan has to be subsidiary to and by necessity has to be less powerful than God. And we believe that. That is what good Christian theology around evil says. That evil is not permanent, it's temporary. Evil is a result of a fundamental break in the cosmos that is restored by the work and by the power of Jesus Christ. Now, if this is the case, what is Antichrist? We tend to think about the Antichrist as a specific person who comes at a specific point in time and does some stuff that tries to resist the coming of the kingdom of God. But what this is suggesting is that Antichrist is not only a specific person, it is a principle that each one of us in some way plays into when we say we are the uh, sovereign over, authority over, the predictor of and determiner of what is good and what is right, and that any time that we assert in our pride that we are in some way the principle of order or unity or law in the universe, that we're denying that God is the one who is uh, the principle of order, the creator, the one who imposes order on chaos, and that Antichrist is not simply an individual person, although it also is an individual person, but that Antichrist rather is a principle of rebellion which extends from the fall and will ultimately be defeated by the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the reading that makes more sense to me is that what's being described here is not capital T, the, capital A, Antichrist, but what's being described here 
is that there is this principle of a counterfeit gospel. Whether it be from human pride, whether it be from the work of Satan, whether that principle be uh, uh, from any principle of, of rebelling against, resisting, or not accepting the sovereignty of God. The Antichrist certainly may be a person. Scripture has used Antichrist to refer to a number of different people at a number of different points in time here, but it also is a principle that says that we and any other agent in the universe can understand themselves to be self-sufficient, uh, the, or, the, the creator of good, the creator of order, order the creator of law, and that the fundamental reason that what has happened in the fall invokes evil is that it's not that we desire evil for evil's sake, it's that we desire our own power, it's that we desire our own ability to create the world, it's that we desire our own ability to say that we are the cause and measure of our own existence. What's being described here, in my opinion, is a pastoral answer to the question, has God left us behind? And what Paul is saying is that when the day of the Lord comes, there will be no more evil. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more suffering. There will be a judgment that will put the universe permanently right. If you're sitting around in your house in Thessalonica and you say, you know what, maybe Jesus has already come and maybe what we're doing is in vain. Paul's saying that if you look out your window and you experience evil or you look in your heart and you experience brokenness, that if you look anywhere and you see that the universe is not, instead of perfectly good and united around and anointed by the presence of Christ, if you see in a world, a place where there is something that is not perfectly centered around the kingdom, then you'll know that the day of the Lord has not come yet. Because when the day of the Lord has come, evil will be put aside. When the day of the Lord has come, judgment will be exercised and the universe will be made right. That's why Paul says, after immediately talking about the Antichrist and the principle of the Antichrist, what does he then immediately say? There's this idea of Antichrist, which is manifest in Satan. But, dot, 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 what is the answer? We always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in truth. Those are the two principles. One principle is a principle of resistance and rebellion that puts us in the place of God, that says that Satan has meaningful control, yada, yada, yada. The other principle is to say that is only a temporary act of rebellion, and at the end, God will establish a kingdom, and when that kingdom is established, there will be no more evil. There will be no more sin. What is being presented here then is not like one of those, I don't know, eschatological chain calendars like we used to make before Christmas and you'd pull off a little link each day till you got to the final uh, you know, uh, day when school is out. It's not like we're saying, okay, uh, well, we've seen the Antichrist and now we've seen the pull away of the restrainer and now we're about to see judgment. Instead, what is being, uh, the point that I think Paul is being made here is making here relies on this, uh, this beautiful rhetorical form known as the enthymeme. And it's this, it's that in answer to the question, has God abandoned us? Has the day of the Lord already come? Paul says, if the day of the Lord has come, there will be no more evil. But there is evil. 
We look in our heart, we look in the world around us, we look at the struggles that the people in Thessalonica go through, and because there is that evil, and because we serve an infinitely powerful and infinitely good God, we know that the day of the Lord has not come yet if the universe is still in any way broken, not perfected, if in any meaningful way we are not aligned with Christ, because when Christ, the true sovereign, comes, everything will be set right. This is not a passage that is trying to get us to prognosticate or predict the coming of the Antichrist, which is how so many people have read it, in my opinion. This is a passage that is about a pastor looking at a church and saying, God still loves you. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. No longer will there be pain or violence or suffering or poverty or any other thing that is a result of a counterfeit doctrine of sovereignty that is oriented around sin and death and destruction because our God has created us not to suffer, not to sin, but to be made right and redeemed by him. And when God comes, there will be no more sin and suffering, not just no more Caesar to force oaths on the people of Thessalonica, not just no more sickness, not just no more violence, but literally when the day of the Lord comes, we will be fully and completely in his presence, evil will be annihilated and we will have most beautiful, full communion, not only with each other, but with the Trinity itself. We will be fully invited into the life and love of God. The day of the Lord has not come because if it had, things would be a lot different. Our hope is to live towards that end. And our prayer is to be prepared to do the things we're called to do until that day has come. Amen.